You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. Well, the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26 and also known as the Glasgow Conference, it's uh, set to happen on the 20, on the 31st of October. That's this uh, uh, Sunday, right? Until the 12th of November. So 12 days. Um, and this is under the co-presidency of uh, the United Kingdoms and Italy. So it's happening in Glasgow, Scotland. So as the city's putting finishing touches before hosting the climate talks, the United Nations actually announced that greenhouse gas concentration concentration hit a record last year and the world is way off track in capping rising temperatures and a report by the UN World Meteorological Organization showed that carbon dioxide levels surged to 413.2 parts per million in 2020 and this means an increase more than the average rate over the last decade despite in fact a temporary dip in emissions during the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, And the secretary, the WMO um, secretary general, said we are way off track, um, that we need to revisit our industrial energy and transport systems and um, uh, our whole way of life, in fact. And he is calling for a dramatic increase in commitment at COP26, the conference that's starting on Sunday. So to talk about climate change and especially the impact that it's going to have on the um, impact on our ability to uh, provide food on diseases in this country, on changes in agriculture, for instance, is Professor Jennifer Fitchett, Associate Professor for Physical Geography at Wits University. Uh, Professor Fitchett, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much. And uh, just a quick word of apology if the signal does come and go. Level 4 load shedding has hit me at 2 o'clock today. Oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, ESCOM. Uh, it's just part and parcel of the irritations of load shedding. But, Prof, I think maybe we should start with maybe unpacking what just a quick revision on a couple of things about, for instance, what is climate change? Because there's surveys in different parts of the world that suggest that, um, you know, parts of our population don't know or understand what climate change is. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about climate change, we're talking about a change usually unidirectional in nature from one mean climate state to another that occurs for a period of at least 30 years. And here I'm talking about WMO definitions. So we want to see a sustained change in a particular direction that takes us from one mean climate state to another. And that's what we'd refer to as climate change, uh, as opposed to climate variability, where we're talking about interannual or interdecadal changes that are more cyclical in nature. Right. So, so this something like the El Nino Southern Oscillation, for example, which has a, a period of 7 to 14 years and can induce much warmer conditions during El Nino and much colder conditions during La Nina, that would be considered climate variability. Whereas uh, the unidirectional 1.1 degree increase in temperature over the past century, that is what we consider to be climate change. Mm, so global warming um, and the amount of CO2 brings about this particular change. How does it do so? Yeah, correct. So, so we have both natural and anthropogenically driven climate change. And that 1.1 degree increase over the past century is anthropogenic in nature. So the greenhouse gases, and those include carbon dioxide and methane is one of the strongest greenhouse gases, uh, those are emitted by man through uh, car emissions, 
through industrial emissions, through the production of, of coal-fired power, if we can see any in mm. South Africa today, that would be useful, <laughs> given the amount of emissions that we're producing through that. Um, and all of these gases are gases that have the potential to trap heat, and they're very good at trapping, in particular, long-wave radiation. So we have very short-wave radiation that reaches us from the sun. That uh, short-wave radiation is absorbed by the Earth, and to a smaller extent, absorbed by things such as clouds, and then re-emitted as long-wave radiation. And it's at that point that that long-wave radiation can be um, uh, captured and stored by these greenhouse gases, and they form a a sort of blanket around the Earth that holds in a temperature that otherwise would be emitted back out into space. Mm -hmm. So we've Mm -hmm. always had this blanket of greenhouse gases right since the earliest atmosphere um, 3 billion years ago, We've always had greenhouse gases, and that's one of the things that has made our Earth habitable. But the difference that we're talking about now is an increased concentration of greenhouse gases, which is driven by humans, and that is taking us to a point where we are uh, storing more heat than we should be, and temperatures are increasing as a result of that. Mm. So uh, let's have a reminder of what actually is at stake. What uh, um, What's at stake for the planet and life on it if we see this increase in temperature? So I think it's firstly important to recognize that the increase in temperature is a concern in and of itself. So we've got a, a change from a temperature that very easily sustains a wide, wide variety of life to temperatures that will increasingly exceed thresholds that become more difficult to uh, sustain life and more difficult for us as humans and for plants and animals to be able to thrive. And that's gradual increases in temperature. We also then have an increased uh, frequency and intensity of extreme temperature events, so our heat waves. Uh, We're also seeing in a few cases an increase in cold wave events as well Mm. uh, because of the changes to the climate dynamics um, and the climate system. And then we're also seeing, as a result of the disruptions in the heat balance and the energy balance of the Earth, and as a result of some of the uh, impacts that that will have on evaporation and on condensation, as well as on our uh, air pressure systems, that we're also getting an increase in the frequency and severity of drought events. We're getting an increase in probability of droughts such as the Cape Town Day Zero drought occurring. We're getting an increase in the intensity of uh, our tropical cyclones in the southwest Indian Ocean. We're now experiencing uh, stronger and stronger tropical cyclones. They're able to expand over a much larger area of the ocean. So we're starting to see tropical cyclones outside of the tropics, uh, moving south of the Tropic of Capricorn. And we're also starting to see very extreme storm events in terms of thunderstorms, hailstorms, very strong wind events. And these are are climatic changes that are already being detected. We already have seen them over the last couple of decades. And as the sixth assessment report of the IPCC has very clearly put forward, those are expected to intensify further to the end of the century. Um, Regardless of of which of the um, climate scenarios we're looking at, Hmm. even if we are able to do quite a lot to reduce our carbon emissions, it's going to take a huge amount to turn that um, around to the point that we're not very concerned about these extreme climate events. Oh my goodness. So let me understand you. Let me understand you. You're saying we are already in motion 
into uh, increased temperatures, into a, a, a climate or a world that's impacted by climate change. We're already into it. Correct. So cyclone die, um, we don't want to pin individual events on climate change, but cyclone die is an example of the type of tropical cyclone that is projected to occur more frequently and to have a greater probability of occurring in southern Africa. Cape Town's day zero drought, one of the big drivers there, is the southward displacement of the westerlies. That's occurring because of this regional scale warming. We're expanding our, our Hadley cell, which is our tropical cell, and it's displacing our westerlies. And that process means that the chance of a day zero drought in the southwestern Cape is amplified. There is uh, concerns about the probability of similar day zero type drought events in other regions of the country. In Gauteng, we're very dependent on the Lesotho Highlands water scheme for our water. And so there are concerns about a day zero type of drought in Gauteng. But even if we, if, if we are concerned about the accuracy of model outputs, even if we don't know the degree to which we're able to turn around our carbon emissions, we already are experiencing the Cape Town day zero drought. We've already experienced cyclone die. Uh, the heat waves that have been experienced across Europe quite frequently over the past 15 years are a sign that we are already experiencing very, very deadly and very damaging extreme climate events. Mm, A couple of weeks ago, in fact, we spoke to um, a team that studies lightning there at Fitz University. And they were also one of the research topics that they were looking at is around um, the impact of climate change on lightning uh, uh, incidents, you know, if as uh, the climate changes, they they also uh, looking into that, you know, the occurrence of lightning as a consequence. So there are lots of uh, various aspects of life uh, and systems that clearly will be affected. But if we are to look to politics at the moment, developed nations are uh, said to be, it's said that they're three years late in meeting a pledge that they made, a commitment um, to put together a total of $500 billion to help poorer countries tackle climate change. And they vowed back in 2009 to deliver $100 billion a year for five years, starting in 2020. But it looks like um, this plan, there was a plan that was supposed to be put together by Canada and Germany um, uh, ahead of the summit. Uh, They said that the annual target would now not be met until 2023. This is also about... um, governments cooperating and working together the, the the question about balancing the need for development um and the need to cut back emissions how are we to frame and understand this question because world leaders will be debating this particular component of this effort to uh, to mitigate the effects of climate change yes absolutely and and the, the very strong argument is that if we look at our current emissions, those are the product of uh, anthropogenic activities dating back to the Industrial Revolution and an Industrial Revolution that was very centered around Europe and then expanding out into North America. And it is a big challenge today to look at a number of countries that are considered to be countries of the global north or developed countries because of that head start that they've had in um developing very strong industries and developing very robust electrical grids because of centuries of time and reliant on fossil fuels. And so if we look historically, there certainly is a very, very strong 
uh, requirement for these countries to take responsibility for the emissions that they have contributed. And then from a very practical standpoint, that they are also the countries that are most able to afford transition. And so there's a lot of discussion around this just transition and how we would implement a just transition and how we ensure that people are held accountable for their historical actions, but also that we think about who is able to make the greatest change at this point in time. That said, we also need to recognize that we are at a point of crisis. And although there is blame that can be placed on particular countries, on particular regions, and while some are better positioned to be able to make very large investments in terms of a transition to a low-carbon economy, we also need to try in every region to do what we can to decarbonize, to do what we can to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Because unfortunately, climate change is global in nature. Um, some regions are projected to be more uh, seriously affected by climate change, both yeah. because of the rate of change. And so much of Africa is expected to experience climate change in the range of about 1.5 times the global average. Mm. And that is very unfortunate because it's a region that historically did not contribute um, significantly to climate change. But it's also a region which is, has a much lower adaptive capacity and therefore is much more vulnerable to even an equal rate of climate change. And so living in a region such as that and being one of the more developed countries in Africa, I think we also need to take responsibility as a country such as South Africa, I think countries such as India and China need to be doing the same to recognize that we are in a different position to the least economically developed countries and that where we are still very reliant on, on coal and on um, carbon, that we need to be very involved in these transitions and we need to take responsibility because that will help us in the long run. Mm. And it is a challenge in terms of weighing up immediate development needs, being able to provide housing, water, sanitation, electricity to our population to meet very basic human rights needs and putting investment into the future. And whether that investment is to be able to mitigate the impacts of climate change and reduce our contribution to the global carbon and uh, totals, or whether it's uh, putting in adaptation strategies to make sure that we can withstand uh, the rainfall associated with tropical cyclones such as we die, whether we can um, be able to get through another day zero drought in the Cape, whether that's desalinization technologies or similar. All of that is asking people to put money now into our future and a future that will be realized in 2050, 2075, 2100 where that money arguably could be spent on housing somebody tomorrow. And it is a difficult way up to make, but it's, it's increasingly a very critical way up that we do need to make. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see what the horse, how the horse trading goes, because every nation has its own interests um, at heart. They want to uh, kind of stay with their own development agenda um, instead of uh, considering their contribution to the global effort. So the, that horse trading and some of the wrangling that will be going on, I think, will be interesting to observe at a time when we're seeing a future generation um, that is much more vocal, that is quite vocal about uh, what world leaders are choosing to do today, um, which will have a direct impact on their future. Uh, Prof, stay with us as we take headlines. My guest is Professor Jennifer Fitchett, Associate Professor for Physical Geography at Wits University, as we talk climate change ahead of COP26. 702. Masterclass. 
Let's take a listen to your voice notes as we pick up our conversation with Professor Jennifer Fitchett, Associate Professor for Physical Geography at Wits University. And we'll uh, get in, hone in a lot more in this segment about the likely impact on this part of the world. My name is Sunny Morgan and I am a climate activist with African Climate Reality Project, South Africa. Climate change poses an existential risk to our society and not enough people are taking it serious enough. We're already at 1.1 degrees and it's unlikely that we will reach our target of 1.5. Two degrees is however more likely and we must do everything in our power humanely to do that and to reach that target. Um, If we do, we will um, save ourselves uh, immense hardship Uh, What we must do now is build resiliency around how do we live in a two-degree world. Mm, Yeah, and uh, the difference between 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees is uh, quite substantial as well. It's not a small shift. It does mean an increase in misery for life on Earth, human and otherwise, but all life. Uh, What do you think of that comment about society not taking this uh, issue seriously enough that, in fact, climate change poses an existential risk uh, to our society? Prof? Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. And I think it's really important to to recognize that there are some incredible activist groups who are doing really phenomenal and important work in the climate change space. There are a number of climate change scientists who are doing very, very large amounts of research and contributing to reports such as the IPCC success assessment report mm. uh, and contributing to the work that's being cited in those reports. And there are a number of people across uh, legal fraternities, political groups, um, uh, people who are working in the corporate space, but that they still represent a very, very small proportion of uh, our population in South Africa, in Southern Africa, and globally. And unfortunately, there's also a very large group of climate change denialists who are still out there acting at, at very different scales. So some of them, it's armchair uh, climate change denialists who have theories about, um, really some of them quite bizarre theories about uh, climatic changes that are happening. If they're willing to concede that there has been a change in temperature, they want to pose a, a different kind of reason for why that might be occurring. Um, and then very obstructive climate change analysis. We're doing quite a lot to ensure that we aren't making the kinds of proactive changes that we need to mitigate climate change and to adapt effectively to what's to come. And then just very, very wide-scale apathy that climate change isn't something that people think about day to day and uh, that issues around crime or ESCOM or um, COVID-19 grab attention and hold it for longer periods of mm. time uh, mm. than climate change currently is. Yeah, as you, and as you said earlier, it's already quite visible. Uh, speaking of ESCOM, here's a voice note. Hi, Aza. Let's look on the bright side. At least with ESCOM being out of action, they're not contributing to global warming. <laughs> Come on. Uh, that's, a, that's a bright side of life. It's Brian. No, okay, Brian. Okay, being tongue-in-cheek there. All right, uh, just a comment on more or less on load shedding, actually. 
But, uh, Prof, can we look at some of the things that we can sort of start to anticipate? How will, because one of the things that's anticipated is that the change in climate will mean a very different kind of um, terrain um, that uh, South Africa or even the continent and other parts of the world will start to uh, to, to uh, change towards. Um, what are these changes that we can anticipate in our, um, in our environment? So again, just to say that this isn't even looking into the future. We're already experiencing these changes. So all plants and animals have very narrow thresholds uh, of temperature, rainfall, humidity, wind, etc., that are ideal for their growth, and then a narrow threshold of what is acceptable for their growth. And beyond that, they really do struggle. Uh, we have to understand that we have a world that has such diversity in plant and animal distributions precisely because of the level to which they are adapted to individual climatic zones. And mm. we can see that across South Africa. We've got uh, very distinct biomes from our savannas and grasslands through to the Cape uh, Floristic region and through to the Drakensberg. Those are really very different. And each of those is constrained by a climate which has changed very gradually over tens of thousands of years. So if we look back to the last glacial maximum, 24,000 years ago approximately, uh, we're talking about temperatures that were six degrees colder than today. Hmm. So over 24,000 years, we've moved to contemporary uh, average temperature of about 13 degrees Celsius, and we've now increased by 1.1 degrees over the past 100 years. And that's really where the challenge lies. That adaptation happens over very, very slow time periods. So where our temperatures are changing more rapidly as they have been, so we're talking one degree in the past century, six degrees over the past 24,000 years, and we're talking about plants and animals that have to make much more rapid um, changes to be able to find a climate or respond to a climate that is as similar as possible to the thresholds that they have adapted to. And so for plants and animals, there are three areas in which they can respond when the temperature is not what it should be for them. Uh, the first is to, be, is to change the range in which they exist. So assuming we had a completely natural environment, no sensors, no artificial surfaces, uh, particularly animals can very easily get up and move somewhere else. Mm. So if it's too hot, they can get up and move uh, to higher latitudes or higher altitudes to find temperatures that more closely resemble what they are adapted to. And unfortunately, we are in a world where we have uh, urbanized very large areas. Even in rural areas, we have fences, we have boundaries. And so um, unless you're in an area such as the Kruger Park, you cannot make very large latitudinal or altitudinal range changes if you're an animal. If you're a tree, you are planted where you are planted and you will live there for the duration that you uh, survive as an individual tree. But when you are seeding, those seeds then can enact a range shift by germinating further and further towards the poles or further um, towards higher altitudes. Mm. And so a range shift is possible there. And those range shifts are more visible when we're talking about annual crops or trees that grow very quickly. But again, that assumes that we have a very vast natural environment where that can take place. Again, uh, trees um, are able to seed across fences but they're not able to feed in concrete surfaces, for example. And so yeah. that is limited to an extent. So a range shift is the first thing that a, a plant or animal would do. 
The second thing is what is termed a phenological shift. So that is a changing in the timing of Mm -hmm. an annually recurrent biological event. So changing the time at which they flower, the time at which they produce leaves, the time at which they produce fruits, and that those fruits are ready uh, either to drop naturally or to be harvested. And we're seeing those phenological shifts. Um, In Johannesburg and Pretoria, our jacarandas are in flower right now. And about um, a century ago in 1920, 1930, those jacarandas were flowering in mid-November. Mm. We've already seen a month uh, shift to earlier flowering in our jacarandas. The same thing is seen in apple and pear trees in the southwestern Cape. And a similar thing is being recorded for the Macaulay daisies along the west coast. And we can see parallels amongst animals as well. So uh, for the sardine run, which is a very popular touristic and fishing events along uh, the Durban coast, that sardine run is happening later and later in the year because temperatures are too warm for the sardines to migrate earlier. So that's kind of phenological shift. And that is, again, a plant or an animal saying, I can tolerate a particular temperature range for a particular activity, whether it's migration or whether it's flowering. And if, for me, spring is when it is, let's say, 23 degrees Celsius, and 23 degrees Celsius was originally experienced in, in September, but it's now being experienced in August. For the plants, that means that August is now spring. And so they're going to flower earlier. And that works in the short run. It is a good adaptation and response. But it places that plant at much greater risk of frost damage. Mm-hmm. And it means that the dormancy period is being condensed. And the plant is not able to collect and store as much energy as it would normally be able to do so. Hmm. And so that then leads to the third response, which is local extirpation uh, or localized extinction, where a plant just cannot survive any longer in a particular environment. And that is the kind of future that we're likely to see, where we're pushing our plants and our animals to the extreme where they are no longer able to survive in particular environments. And if they've been able to move out of that environment, that plant or animal might continue to survive and we might see a shift in ecosystems but again, if that kind of movement isn't possible, then we start to face the possibilities of losing out on a lot of our species' diversity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and we've uh, talked for so long and prided ourselves on the biodiversity that South Africa has inherent to it. And also a consequence of, of what the prophet is saying is that that's going to impact our abilities to be able to source sustenance, food, and to obviously interact with the environment to our benefit in order to continue sustaining life. Uh, so ultimately that chain comes right back uh, to human beings. Let's take a break. And when we come back, We'll go into the terrain of disease. So with this changing uh, environment, natural environment, what does that mean for new diseases, new vectors um, in in our environment that will bring about uh, disease? More after the break. 702 Masterclass. That um, we are nearly concluding our masterclass, nearly at the end, in fact, with uh, Professor Jennifer Fitchard. So much will be flowing out of COP26, which starts on the 31st of uh, October. That is this Sunday, 12 days. The issue around um, the future of the planet will be discussed by heads of state as well as others. Um, and uh, the activists will be represented, various quarters will be represented. Um, and it's important that we pay attention to this because decisions will be made on our 
our behalf. So, Prof, now that we've outlined or looked at the impact that could play out or the impact that an increase in um, ambient temperatures could have on the environment, what are the consequences on disease? You know, could we see a rise in certain disease or an introduction um, of certain diseases in new areas as a result? Yeah, it's a, a very big area of concern. And um, already in Southern Africa, we've seen an expansion in the malaria area. And there's been quite frequent efforts to update the malaria risk map of Southern Africa, uh, which were largely stagnant for quite a long time. And we, we're having to expand those very quickly uh, with projections that that's going to increase in the area even more rapidly going forward. So we're seeing both a, a, a poleward and a westward shift in the area of the malaria risk zone. Um, related to that is more rapid speciation uh, amongst malaria uh, uh, mosquitoes. So that's one area and we're seeing the same in a number of other vector-borne diseases. Uh, the second big area of concern is where we have um, diseases that are driven by climatic seasonality or uh, by climatic factors. Mm. So we know in um, sort of quite basic terms that there is a respiratory disease uh, seasonality, that there is a flu season, for example, and that's why we have flu vaccines that roll out uh, towards May of each year because we do know that there is an increase in the transmission of influenza during winter months and, and there's an increase in the number of cases of the common cold and other respiratory diseases. And because that is linked to climatic seasonality, those uh, disease profiles are going to change as climate changes. Um, there are also impacts, particularly when we have very large uh, storm events and we have a lot of stagnant water around the incidence of diarrhea and, and the potential for uh, cholera and bilharzia. Um, so following something like tropical cyclone die, that's a very, very big concern is the fact that we've got stagnant water. And then we also have to be aware of the health concerns related to temperature increases themselves. Mm. So the heat uh, stress, and the heightened incidence of uh, cardiac issues and strokes that are associated with heat stress. And there's also a lot of ongoing research in health biometrology about other health concerns that are tied to changing climate. And um, a lot of quite wide-ranging research about uh, psychiatric uh, case inputs, for example, yeah. and how those would be driven by changes in climate and um, abrupt and unusual climatic conditions. Mm. Any thinking on uh, women particularly, the impact on how women will be, um, the, the impact that this will have on women? Um, Christina uh, 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 Fuguera, I think she is a diplomat along with Mary Robinson, worked very hard at uh, COP Paris to make sure that this document gives clarity on not only the degree of increase, but also centers uh, women as a, a really important component of society. Uh, what is the thinking at present now that this inclusion has finally been or was made at uh, Paris? I think that's important across the board. So not just in terms of health, but in terms of uh, understanding the climate change impacts, working towards climate change mitigation, working on climate change adaptation, is understanding uh, that we are still living in a world where there are huge uh, issues of gender inequality, but also where we have a very different role that can be played um, when we are inclusive of um, the role that women are playing in driving political change and the role that women are, are playing in terms of being active of change. And I think that's very important in and of itself. 
But then we also need to recognize that if we're talking about regions across Africa, that it's very, very important to understand uh, female-headed households, for example, mm. and the actions that they're playing in terms of a just transition. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for uh, doing this uh, a start to COP26. It's going to be a fascinating 12 days. Thank you, Prof. You're very welcome. That's Professor Jennifer Fitchett, Associate Professor for Physical Geography at Fitz University. It was Christina Figueres. She's a Costa Rican diplomat. Yes, written several books, in fact, on um, what they had to do, the behind the scenes of COP15 and, and uh, just how tough some of those negotiations were. As we anticipate world leaders to have tough negotiations around this COP26 happening in Glasgow from the 31st of October.